The Egyptian History Podcast, Episode 21, The Excited Child. Welcome back to the Egyptian History Podcast. Last time, we followed the career of Weni the Elder, an official of the early 6th dynasty, whose services to king and country earned him prestige and fame in posterity. This week, the 6th dynasty reaches the reign of its longest-serving monarch, Pepi II. Pepi II came to the throne at the age of six, following the death of Merenre, who was either the father or half-brother of Pepi, depending on the source you read. For Vivian Gay Callender, an eminent Australian Egyptologist who has specialised in the study of the royal family, Merenre was the half-brother of Pepi, both of whom being sons of Pepi I. For Audran Labrousse, a French scholar considering the same questions, Pepi I was the father of Merenre, and Merenre the father of Pepi II. I have suggested in the previous episode that Merenre ruled for approximately 11 years, a date to which I still generally hold. Again, depending on the source you follow, he may have ruled between 6 and 11 years, with no easy solution to the question. So for the sake of argument, I can only say that Pepi II was related somehow to Merenre, either his half-brother from Pepi I, in which case Merenre only ruled for approximately six years, alternatively he was Merenre's son, in which case Merenre can rule as long as your evidence allows. What is clear from this situation, however, is that Pepi II did not rule in his own capacity for many years after his accession. The throne was now in the hands of a queen regent, named Ankh Enes Pepi, the second woman at this time to hold such a name. Ankh Enes Pepi II was the sister of a woman with the same name, who had married Pepi I and produced Merenre. Ankh Enes Pepi II either married her nephew Merenre, or produced Pepi II by marriage to Pepi I. Either way, it's a confusing bloodline. Such a young boy in charge of a powerful centralized kingdom was a situation that had not occurred since the death of Men Re over 150 years earlier. At that time, the royal mother Kenti Kaus I had stepped into the void, handling the reins of power for her infant son. For such governance, she was awarded the title Sat Netcher, Daughter of the God, a title reserved for royal women who at one point or another were solely responsible for the continuation of the bloodline. Ankh Enes Pepi II was a capable leader who followed the trends of the day by organising royal expeditions in the name of her son. The first expedition was dispatched to the Sinai Peninsula, presumably for copper or turquoise. At a site known as the Wadi Magara, the names of Ankh Enes Pepi and Pepi II are carved side by side, with the queen going by the following titles. Mother of the King of Upper and Lower Egypt, of Neferkare M. Ankh, Pepi's throne name, the king's wife of Pepi I or Merenre, beloved of the pyramid Meri Re Men Nefer, she being beloved of all the gods. The Queen strove to proclaim her legitimacy 
within and without Egypt. Presenting herself not only as the mother of King Pepi II, she also emphasized her status as a great royal wife. Finally, she connected herself with the pyramid cult of Pepi I, giving her legitimacy in the name of this great ruler. The spotlight of royal power was firmly fixed on Ankh-Enes Pepi, and the young Pepi I was probably left to his own devices. At the royal court of the early 6th dynasty, princes were educated alongside the children of provincial elites. The nomarch and overseer Kar, Q-A-R, was present at the court in the early years of Merenre, having been brought there from Edfu on the orders of Pepi I. Growing up within the royal household itself, Kar and other elite children gained access to the centre of power on a level that had never been experienced before. We have seen the rise of officials like Tar Shepses of Abusir, whose career as a hairdresser for Neusere took him to the exalted position of vizier. But Kar and those like him were now members of the inner circle from a very young age, taught the same values as the king themselves, and devoted to the service of the royal household. The whole process was part of the king's efforts to bring the elites more securely into their service. While Neusere and Jed Kare had recognised the value of incorporating provincials into the higher levels of government, Teti and Pepi I had begun to bring them into the household itself from an early age. The result was a provincial leadership with a long ingrained loyalty to the crown, and a familiarity with the ways of government that enhanced their leadership, and benefited the king directly. When Ka came of age in the reign of Merenre, he was sent to the south to act as the overseer of the grain supply, a job which required careful attention to irrigation and agriculture. He described his duties thus. I caused the oxen of this gnome to be foremost among oxen, and my cattle stables to be foremost of the entire Southland. Indeed, it was not something that I had found done by any nomarch of this region previously, by virtue of my watchfulness and because my management was effective for the royal residence. Kar's duties remind us clearly of the rural nature of Egyptian government. Like an estate rancher of the Old West, the overseer journeyed into the hinterlands beyond the small villages and got involved in cattle raising and pastoral care. Animals were fundamentally important to the Egyptians. Those of you listening since the early episodes may remember that the way early kings dated their reigns was based on a semi-annual census of the cattle living in the Nile Valley. Herds of livestock were the most versatile of Egyptian possessions. Sending car to the rural areas to raise cattle was not an exile, but a prestigious duty with great honour. More important for this podcast, which does tend to focus on the activities of the government, was Ka's vocal pride in having effectively served the royal household, or residence. The royal residence was known in Egyptian as the Henu, and was the centre of all economic and administrative activity in which the king took any interest. 
From the residents, goods were delivered to centres throughout Egypt, especially the pyramid temples located just west of the capital. But it was so much more than a centre of government and commerce. The residence was the symbolic heart of the royal state, a place from which all of the two lands could be protected by the king. By provisioning temples and pyramids from the royal household, the king and his family could be seen as the protectors of Egypt, patrons of the gods' temples, and those who sustained the country with their service. Ka was one of a generation who had grown up learning this idea, and it seems to have stuck with him. While today we may view such attitudes somewhat cynically, and wonder how dearly he believed it, we should remember that these inscriptions come from his tomb, a place where one's words could testify to your character. The texts which Ka ordered for his tomb would be his testament in the next world. And just like you would not want your gravestone to list your less admirable traits, those of the Egyptians were meant to exemplify the positives they believed about themselves and their life. For instance, Ka remarked the following, I gave bread to the hungry and clothing to the naked of those I found in my gnome. I gave jugs of milk. I measured out grain from my own estate for the hungry whom I found in this region. Carr was a philanthropist in a direct sense. He provisioned the local people with goods and ensured that where hunger had struck a community, the representatives of the king were on hand to meet their needs. He then continues, As for every man who I found in this gnome with a loan against him for another, it was I who repaid the loan to its owner from my own estate. It was I who buried every man of this gnome who did not have a son, with cloth from my property of my estate. Ka was the elite patron par excellence. Like Wenny before him, he proclaimed the most effective of his policies and actions, praising himself as much for his good character as the good work he did in his community. Such actions were not just kind deeds, but also had an underlying value for the king and royal household. Every elite administrator who was sent to the provinces was a representative of the divine king, and every act they performed reflected on the man sitting at the centre of this religious power structure. Ka, patron of the hungry and those who were in debt or deceased without heir, was the beneficent hand of the king. Through his actions, the people of Egypt were protected by the king, and the cosmic order, Ma'at, was maintained. It is a complex system of thought, and one quite different from what we think today. Rarely does one look at their local government representative and think positively of the central authority. But the representatives of today do not govern as directly as those of ancient Egypt. Ka was present in the rural communities, organising labour and agricultural activity, overseeing the herding and counting of cattle. The whole system was more hands-on than we are used to. The net effect of this was a more direct link between the rural population and those who governed royal estates. Beyond the Nile Valley, however, 
royal activity took a different form. I spoke last episode of the quarrying and canal building organized by Winnie the Elder on behalf of Merenre. Under Carr's supervision, the desert regions of the south, probably out to the western oases of Dakla and Kaga, were pacified and policed by Egyptian troops. Then, in year two of Pepe's reign, an expedition returned from the deep south. At its head was a man whom posterity has recognized as the most famous of the 6th dynasty officials. The overseer of Neken, royal seal-bearer, overseer of foreigners, and lector priest, Harkuf. Harkuf, meaning Horus protects him, was dispatched to the southern land of Iam late in the reign of Merenre. Rather than taking the Nile down to Iam, Harkuf was to travel by land, leading a donkey caravan deep into the southern regions to collect valuable materials and luxuries. The journey would have been long and dangerous, and the official seems to have collected local warriors to protect his caravans along with the Egyptian natives sent with him. Ancient expeditions were lengthy affairs, and while Harkuf was deep in the south collecting goats, cattle, sheep, and luxury items like incense, ebony, oil, and panther skins, the great king Merenre died. By the time Harkuf returned to Egypt, Pepe II was firmly ensconced on his throne and ready to receive his loyal subject. But Harkuf had an unusual and exciting contribution to make to his king, one perfectly suited to the temperament of an eight-year-old boy with all the power of the throne at his fingertips. Harkuf was bringing back to Egypt a pygmy, or dwarf, probably sourced from slave trading deeper in Africa. The excited child king wrote to Harkuf when he received this news, which the overseer had recorded in his tomb at Aswan. I will now read you parts of this letter. The decree of the king to the sole companion, lector priest, overseer of foreigners, Harkuf. That matter of this letter of yours, which you directed to the king at this house, has been duly noted. What you have said in this letter of yours is that you are bringing back a pygmy of the god's dancers from the land of the spirits. The like of the pygmy which was brought back from Punt in the time of Jedkare Isezi. What you have said to my majesty is that his like has never been brought back by any other who reached Iyam previously. Come northward to the royal residence at once. Hurry! Bring back this pygmy with you, living, sound, and healthy, for the dancers of the god, to distract the heart and to thrill the heart of the king of Upper and Lower Egypt, Nefakare Pepi, living forever. You can almost feel the excitement of this child king radiating through these words. Having heard once that his ancestor Jedkare acquired a pygmy from Punt, the king was ecstatic to hear he could have one of his own. His enthusiasm led to a list of commands for Hakuf to ensure the safety of this pygmy. When he goes down with you into the boat, get capable persons 
who will be around him. Take care lest he fall in the water. When he sleeps by night, get capable persons sleeping around him in his cabin. Inspect ten times during the night, for my majesty desires to see this pygmy more than the produce of the mines of Punt. If you arrive at the royal residence with this pygmy living, sound and healthy, my majesty will do for you something greater than that done in the time of Jedkare. Dispatches have been brought to the chiefs of the royal towns, the companions and overseers of the priests, to order the requisitioning of foodstuffs in their charge. No exemption will be made therein. Pepe the Second was sparing no expense in getting this pygmy to him in a good condition. Whether it was requisitioning food from the provinces for Haku's party, or the command to have a bodyguard on the pygmy at all times, this child king was not taking chances. Hakuf seems to have found this letter charming, or at least flattering, for he had the text inscribed on the walls of his tomb. Among the lists of his titles and achievements, this letter from the eight-year-old Pepe II stands as one of the most colourful and entertaining of royal documents in all Egyptian history. The reign of Pepe II would last for many years longer than this episode could possibly cover. Among Egyptian monarchs, and perhaps in all human history, Pepe II is the longest reigning king. Next episode, we will continue the story of Pepe's 94-year reign, in which the stability of the kingdom is threatened by a ruler who outlives two or three generations of his own children. Join us next time for the last great gasp of the 6th Egyptian dynasty, before we begin our descent into the Dark Ages of the First Intermediate Period. As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. What did it take to survive an ancient siege? Why was the cult of Dionysus behind so many slave revolts in ancient Rome? What's the tragic history and mythology behind Japan's most haunted ancient forest? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. Join us to explore ancient history and mythology from a fun, sometimes tipsy perspective. Find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts.